0: Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and my family and I have been on vacation for the last couple of weeks, so we're really glad to be back and to see each one of you this morning, and especially if you are newer with us, if you're a guest, uh, extend a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning, and Um, So, dearly love this church family and and miss you while we were away and uh, really glad to be back. Uh, We're continuing in our Genesis series, and so before we look at our passage of Scripture this morning in Genesis chapter 16, I want to begin this portion of our service by praying and asking for God to to be at work uh, speaking to us through His Word. He's spoken in the past through His Word, and we ask for Him now this morning to speak to each of us afresh. Uh, in this passage. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you for what you have uh, done in the past, for these promises to your people. I pray that now as we look at these, that your spirit would uh, apply these truths afresh to our lives, and that we would be attentive to your voice this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I I wonder if you ever in your life um, going through have felt at times like you're invisible, that that no one really sees you, or, or even if they sort of see you physically, that they don't really know you. They don't know what's going on inside. They don't know the pain. They don't know the loneliness that you're experiencing, uh, this is a, a common experience, often for those who are minorities in a majority culture, setting the feeling of being invisible. Uh, African American author Ry- Ralph Ellison uh, traced to kind of explore this idea and experience in his classic novel *The Invisible Man*, in which the protagonist is never named. He feels invisible. But no matter who you are or what your background is, I think we all have the deep question that is, am I seen, am I known, do I matter, does my life matter? And as we look at this passage in Genesis chapter 16 this morning, we're going to discover the answer to the question, how can I know that God cares for me and sees me? How can I know that God sees me? How can I know that He sees me and that He cares about me? And to do that, we're going to walk through this story in Genesis chapter 16. We're going to walk through the story in three acts, and then we're going to see at the end two truths that we want to glean from the story. So we'll walk through the story in three acts as it unfolds, and then see two key truths at the end. So let's jump in here to Act 1, the barren wife. In the opening of Act 1 of the story, we meet three key characters, and they they all are introduced to us in verse 1, Sarai, Abraham, and Abraham and an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. Now, Sarai and Abram's names eventually get changed to Sarah and Abraham. More on that next week. And just to kind of keep things simple, we'll call them Abraham and Sarah this week as well, um, just to to make it make it easy. And also here in verse one, the very beginning of the story, we're introduced succinctly to the key plot tension that's going to drive this episode of the narrative. And that is this, that Sarah did not have children. So look at verse 1. You see the three characters, you see the plot tension. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, Hagar is going to be the focus of this story. And, And I want you to imagine with me this morning a little bit of what her life would have been like. The text tells us that she was a bond slave, a servant, that she was an Egyptian. Um, And earlier in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, they go down to Egypt because they need food. There's a famine in Canaan. They go to Egypt. They need food. And while they're there, something crazy happens. As they're on their way down to Egypt, this all happens before our story this morning, Abraham gets really afraid because Sarah, his wife, is incredibly beautiful and he's afraid that once they get to Egypt, the Egyptians are going to see how beautiful Sarah is, and they're going to, they're going to kill him and, and, and then take him or take her as, as, a, as a wife or have, give her to the, the king as a, as a concubine or a wife. And so because Abraham's scared of this, he does what, what any good husband would do in that moment. He says, I'll pretend I'm your brother, <laughs> right? I, we're going to see throughout the story, Abraham is not that great of a husband in this story. So they have this lie. He says, tell them I'm your brother, and then they'll actually treat us both really well. So that's what they do. And they do treat Abraham really. We don't have time to go into that whole story, but they do. They treat them very well. A lot of stuff unfolds. Part of what happens in that story, and this is why I go back to that, part of what happens is they treat them so well, the Egyptians give them gifts. And specifically, the text tells us that they gave them male and female slaves, And this is most likely when Hagar comes into the story. We don't know how old she was. We don't know much of her life story from when she was in Egypt, but somehow or another, either through her financial hardship of her family or over her own financial hardship, she ended up enslaved as an indentured servant in Egypt. Now that's bad enough for Hagar, but at least she's still in Egypt, perhaps maybe she was still nearby to her family. She was definitely still at least in her own culture and language and country. But then one day everything changes for Hagar, changes for the worse. She's given by the leaders of Egypt to a foreign family, to, to Sarah as a personal slave. And after the famine is over, Abraham and Sarah, they take Hagar with them, away from Egypt, away from her family, away from her home to the land of Canaan. She'd never see her family again. She'd never see her home again. I Can not imagine the pain of that moment for her? how how invisible she must have felt, how alone. But her story is going to get even more painful in a moment because not only is she taken away from her home, taken away from her family, in a moment she's going to be given as a wife to the master or to to her husband's master, Sarah. Look at verse 2. And Sarah said to Abraham, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, into Hagar. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Now there is all kinds of wrong happening in this verse, all kinds of pain. Remember Sarah has longed for a child for her whole life and yet the authors made it very clear she does not, and we know this from the story last week, she has not been able to have children. And now she is quite old. She's well past childbearing age. And some of you know that pain intimately this morning of longing for a child, not having one. But to add to Sarah's pain, she's been given hope. God has revealed to her and to Abraham directly that you are going to have a child. He's promised not only a child, but you're going to have descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. You are going to have a child. But it's been a decade now since God made that promise. Ten long years and still no child. And her hope is beginning to fade And Sarah, in her pain and in her desperation, she decides to take matters into her own hands. Rather than wait on God's promise, she pursues her own plan. And what is her plan? Hagar. Hagar is her plan. Because you see, it was the custom in that cultural context that the wife could not bear children, that a slave or a concubine could be given to the husband to provide a child in the family. Now, that's a custom in that culture. That's not something that's sanctioned by God. It's not part of God's design. Remember, polygamy is never God's design. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman is the design. But every time you see polygamy in the book of Genesis, it leads to massive problems and heartache for people. In her impatience and her pain and her desperation, Sarah suggested she says, Marry my slave. And this is where the next piece goes wrong. because I already mentioned, Abraham hasn't been a stellar husband. Well, here's another moment, there will be more later, where we see this again. Because in this moment when Sarah suggests, go into Hagar, marry Hagar, let's have a child through her, Abraham should have immediately said, no, God has made a promise to us. We have to trust His promise. It's been hard, but we have to continue to wait on Him. But He doesn't. Instead, verse 2 tells us that He listened to the voice of Sarah, and He goes along with the plan. And in so doing, He draws Hagar into a deeper and more impossible situation. Abraham marries Hagar. She becomes his wife. Notice the language in verse 3. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, he already has a wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Now there is specific language that could have been used to describe Hagar as a concubine or something else besides a wife. But the author goes out of his way to use the language of wife. This slave girl, the servant, has now become an equal with Sarah. She is married to Abraham also, and there will never be peace in those marriages again. Because immediately after Hagar and Abraham are married, Hagar gets pregnant. So it's like, there, is there any way in which that set of relationships is going to go Well, Old man with barren wife marries young new wife who immediately gets pregnant with the child the old barren wife had longed for her whole life but could never have. Like that's a recipe for relational disaster. You thought your marriage had challenging dynamics at times, right? Which brings us to act two, the abandoned wife. And as expected, it gets really bad for everyone, but especially for Hagar. In her new role as wife to Abraham, carrying his child, the child that is longed for, she becomes disdainful of Sarah. Sarah feels like she's been replaced, usurped, and she begins to hate Hagar. I mean, how could these two women not despise one another? And everything gets worse, worse for Sarah, but especially worse for Hagar. Because when Sarah complains to Abraham, verse 5, how does Abraham respond? What does he do? Look at the complaint in verse 5. Then Sarah said to Abraham, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. How does Abraham respond? Does he actively engage in trying to help his two wives get along and live together in peace? Does he seek to protect and provide for his new wife who's pregnant with his child and honor and care for his first wife? Well, what do you think based on his track record so far in the story? Right, he he, he blows it. He doesn't do anything. He totally abdicates any responsibility. He doesn't care for either of his wives in this moment. Rather, he passively makes it worse for both of them. Look at his response to Sarah in verse six. basically says, "This is your problem." Abraham replied, "Look, she is your servant." Let's pause it. Abraham, she's your wife. <laughs> Abram, look, she's your servant. He says, "So deal with her as you see fit." Then Sarah treated. Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. It's like, Abraham, what are you doing here? Like, look, even if you don't care for Hagar as a wife, which you should, you married her, but even if she's still the mother of your unborn child, of your son, you have to take care of her. But he basically abandons both of them. Can you, can you imagine how alone and invisible Hagar must have felt in that moment. She's been taken from her home, worked as a slave for Sarah, then finds herself married to Sarah's husband, pregnant with his child, and now she's been so abused by Sarah without any help or recourse from her husband, Abraham, that she decides her only hope is to run away. So if you're keeping track, Hagar's been taken from her homeland, enslaved to a foreign family, Forced into a marriage she didn't choose. And now she's being abandoned by the husband whose child she's carrying. And finally, Hagar can't can't go on. She can't take it any longer. You can imagine she's she's pregnant, exhausted, overworked, constantly being verbally and emotionally harassed, maybe even physically abused by Sarah, and Hagar decides, I've I've gotta run away, I've gotta flee which is incredibly risky for her, right? Because being a single mom at any time, in any place is hard, really hard. But in this cultural moment, being a single mom who has run away from her husband, who, by the way, had owned her as a slave, the future is not bright for Hagar. But this just tells us how bad it was for her living with Sarah and Abraham. So she runs She runs into the desert. She runs toward home. She runs toward Egypt. And this is where we find ourselves then in Act Three the God who sees. Now, Hagar is now more alone and invisible than she has ever been pregnant, rejected by the family that owned her, abandoned by her husband, wandering by herself in the desert. Invisible, forgotten, utterly alone, lost. Some of you know what that's like. You've been in those kinds of moments. Some of you might be there now, this morning, feeling those things. But she is not invisible. You are not invisible to the God who finds and sees and hears. Even when every human has failed Hagar, mistreated her, abused her, God has not abandoned her. God has not forsaken her. Look at verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her. I love that. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And I wonder what that moment would have been like for Hagar. Hagar. She's sitting by this spring of water in the shade of this oasis, looking out over a vast, empty desert, maybe wondering if this is going to be the last drink she ever takes, feeling her baby kick inside of her. And then she sees something, a person, a man, but it's unlike any person she's ever seen. She encounters, she is found by the angel of the Lord. Hagar, a pregnant, abandoned Egyptian slave, is the first person ever in the entire story of the Bible to encounter the angel of the Lord. And we trace through the storyline of Scripture, the angel of the Lord is not just any angel, it is actually God Himself, Yahweh Himself. You see the beauty and the tenderness in this moment. Yahweh, the creator of the universe who spoke everything into being. Back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the all-powerful God of the universe takes the form in this moment to meet with a single abandoned slave girl in the desert who's hopeless. And just like with Adam and Eve and with Cain, God begins with a question, an invitation to relationship. He asks, where are you going, and where have you come from? But Hagar, unlike Adam and Eve and Cain, she responds with the truth. She simply and truthfully says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Sarah. She doesn't blame or hide or even try to explain. In her desperation, she just tells the truth. I'm running away. And in that moment, the angel of the Lord tells her to go back. To go back and to submit to Sarah. To live back with Abraham. Which in some ways is hard for me to wrap my mind around. Why does God tell her to go back? It's, it's such a, a terrible circumstance she's in. And, and I don't know for sure that we don't… It's spelled out directly for us in the text, probably because the best hope for her and her child is to go back to where the husband is and where she can be taken care of. Probably also because she's carrying the child of, of Abraham, who isn't the child of promise, but is nevertheless the child of this God's covenant family. She goes back. You know, we don't always understand why God allows us to stay in difficult or even in unjust circumstances, but sometimes He does. Even as I say that, though, also remember that these stories, these narratives in Genesis are descriptive. They're telling us what happened. They're not always prescriptive in every bit of their detail, saying this is exactly how you should live your life. Genesis isn't a proof text commanding you to stay in an abusive relationship, What he does, God does in this particular moment, with this particular circumstance, call Hagar to go back, to go back, and he gives her a promise, a promise that her son will be great, that he will experience the freedom that she longed for. And get this, he tells her to name the child Ishmael, which means God hears. Name your son God hears. And at that moment, everything changes for Hagar. Her experience, her personal encounter with the personal God of the universe transforms her. She who was alone, unseen, unheard, lost, is now found, heard, and seen. Listen to how she responds to the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. Verse 13, God made her himself visible to her. She gave this name, Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. She gives God a name, and she says, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have seen the one who sees me. No one, no one is invisible in God's sight. If you write nothing else down today, if you take nothing else from the story, I hope it is this, that you are never invisible to the God who sees you are never invisible to the God who sees you. And in that knowledge, she is found and heard and seen and know. Hagar returns to Abraham and Sarah, and she delivers a baby boy, her son. She names him God hears, Ishmael. And God is faithful to his promise to her. And that's how the story, this episode of the story in Genesis 16 ends. Now, we said at the beginning that there are two key truths revealed in the story. And there's a a dark side to the story, and there's also a bright side to the story. And it's in the dark side of the story that we see the first truth, and that is that your sin always hurts others. Our sin always hurts others. You see this all over the story, all the way back to the moment that Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister and ends up taking an Egyptian slave back with him and his wife to Canaan. And that, sets, uh, that sin sets up a world of hurt and pain, both for his wife and for most of all of his other, uh, everyone in their family, but most of all for the wife of the abandoned Hagar. Our, our sin, no matter how big or how small, it always ripples out and affects others. I, I saw this in my own, in my own life uh, not long ago, about a month ago, Rachel uh, and I were working on kind of doing a bathroom renovation and we were having someone do a lot of the work for us, Um, but there was a project of hanging some, some shelves and we had gotten a bid for that and I thought that seems like a lot of money. I can do that part myself. So one morning, Rachel asked me, she's like, maybe you can do the shelves this morning. I said, okay. And I began the project and soon realized that I was out of my depth, both in the expertise as well as in having the, the kind of tools that were, were needed for the job. But because I was cheap, I was like, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. I don't want to pay someone to do this. Um, but the harder I tried, the more of a funk I got into. And I started to resent Rachel for asking me to do it. I got into a bad mood. I got even more bad mood. And then she was in a bad mood. And then I lost my temper with the kids. Now I'm mad. Now she's upset. The kids are crying all because of my, all because of my sin. It always ripples out. It never just stays combined. And the primary sin that's on display in this text, there are many, right? There are many sins on display in this text, but the primary sin that's on display in this text is the one of the sin of unbelief. Abraham and Sarah, they doubt God's promise. They don't believe him. And because they fail to believe him, they end up ruining Hagar's life in many ways. And this is the root of all sin in the book of Genesis and the root of all sin in our lives, a failure to believe what God has said to trust His promise. This is the moment of the garden played out all over again. God has made a promise. He's given them a command, but they decide that they know better and they take things into their own hand. They define the good for themselves. And it sends pain and hurt spiraling out from it. This is that moment in the story where they, like Adam and Eve, decide to do it their own way. And there are lots of ways that this plays itself out in our lives, but there are two areas that stand out vividly to me where we see that that a a failure to believe God's promises, to trust His design, sends all kinds of shrapnel into our lives. There's lots, but two in particular, the area of of sexual relationships and finances— because we don't believe what God has said about sexual relationships, we enter in relationships and, and take them to a physical and sexual place outside of the bounds of marriage, or we stay in relationships longer than we should or otherwise would, or it slowly desensitizes us to the effect of sin in our lives. And also in finances, and I've seen this over and over again in, in, in my own life and in people that I've pastored life, that often we get in trouble with finances because of our impatience. Our desire for instant gratification leads us to, to take on debt or, or to use a credit card or to draw on savings when we, when we really shouldn't because we want something now. We don't trust God's provision. We don't trust His timing. We don't trust that what He's given us is enough. Right? Both with sexuality and money, at the root of why we, we transgress God's design, while we, we go away from God's design, so we don't think that waiting on Him and trusting and living according to design will actually give us life. And so where are you failing to believe God's promise? Where is sin leading to conflict and pain in your relationships? What would it look like to believe God's promises in those places in your life? I mean, another question, where, where are you not waiting well for God's design and His promise? That's the, that's the dark side, this, the shadow side of this story. But there's a bright side to the story, too. And that's the second and most beautiful truth in the story, is that your suffering Your suffering is never invisible to the God who sees you. Your suffering is never invisible to the God who sees. You are never invisible to the God who sees you. No matter who you are this morning, no matter where you're at in your life, no matter what has caused your suffering and sadness and loneliness, you are not invisible to the God who sees. Whether your suffering is suffering you've brought on yourself (laughs) whether it's suffering that that you've had at the hands of others, whether you are just suffering because we live in a broken world that does not work like it's supposed to, the God of the Bible sees you. He has found you. He hears you. He knows you. You are not invisible. He sees you in your desperation and in your joy. He sees you in your loneliness and in your longings. You are never invisible. Your sufferings are never invisible to Him. Maybe this morning you you feel invisible because of your ethnicity or culture is overlooked or despised. I know for many who are minorities in a majority culture setting, the sense of of feeling invisible or feeling overlooked or, or feeling even despised is palpable and weighty. But you are never invisible to the God who sees you. Uh, Maybe you feel invisible because of physical pain, right? Pain can be so isolating from the outside, right? No one sees it or experiences like what you do on the inside, this constant sense of physical pain, and it can just leave you feeling completely alone. While those around you continue to go on and do their normal life, you suffer seemingly alone. But you are never invisible to the God who sees you. Maybe you feel invisible because of infertility. In in a church that is full of people having babies, if you're longing for but unable to have a child, you may feel invisible, alone, overlooked. You are never invisible to the God who sees you. Maybe, maybe you feel invisible because you're, you're single. Maybe you've started to give up on hope of, of finding meaningful relationships. Maybe not just a spouse, but just meaningful relationships at all in your life. You feel alone. You feel sad at times. You are never invisible to the God who sees you. No matter the cause of your suffering, your loneliness, your isolation, your invisibility, know this morning, friends, you are known and seen by the God of the universe, by the God whose name is, you are the one who sees me. The South Asian Bible scholar, Baskar Jairaj, sums it up this way, beautifully, the impact of the story. He says, Hagar no longer needed to flee, no matter how arrogantly she had behaved, no matter how Sarah treated her, she had discovered that she was important in the eyes of the Lord. Divine revelation is not only given to leaders, but also to those who are oppressed, irrespective of their race, class, or gender. The kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there is no one who's too, too big or too small, no one is overlooked. No one is invisible. You are never invisible to the God who sees you. So in those moments of feeling alone, of feeling isolated, invisible, ignored, pray like this, pray like this, God, I believe, I believe you. I believe you see me when no one else does. You have heard my suffering. You see my pain. I believe that your grace will be sufficient for me today. Thank you for finding me when I was lost. Thank you for seeing me when I am invisible. Can you pray like that in those moments? Have you seen the God who sees you? That's the question for each of us this morning. He sees you. Have you seen him? Have you trusted him? Have you given your life to him? Jesus is the angel of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God. He sees you. He hears you. Jesus was forsaken on the cross. He became the sin that God cannot look upon so that we could be accepted by God and always seen by him no matter what. Jesus was forsaken so that God will never turn his face away from you. He will always see you All of the hurt that our sin has caused for us and others is ultimately placed on Jesus. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away. He turns His face away from Jesus. He doesn't see Him so that He can see us. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen ones bring many sons to glory have you seen the God who sees you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for each person here this morning, each woman, each man, each child gathered in this room. Pray that they would know afresh that You see them, that You love them, Lord Jesus, that you have taken upon yourself all of the pain and hurt that our sin has caused others and that you see us and are with us in every suffering of our life. would as we celebrate the communion meal this morning, be reminded afresh of your sufferings for us and of your great promise to us. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.